This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Novara Live. I'm Michael Walker. It's a Friday, which means I'll be joined by Aaron Bastani. Later on, I say joined because he's just sorting out the sound on his computer. Um, coming up later tonight, the Home Secretary has been called out telling racist lies about grooming gangs. There are more updates on GB News's civil war, um, which is well and truly out in the open. And Rishi Sunak squirms when confronted by local radio journalists. Stay tuned for all of that. Let's get on with that first story. Next week, Rishi Sunak will give his first conference speech as Tory party leader. And according to The Guardian, it will be a big pitch to motorists. So they report this. The plan for motorists is expected to include moves to limit English Council's powers to place 20 miles per hour speed limits on main roads and to restrict the number of hours a day that car traffic is banned from bus lanes. It is also understood to include curbs on local authorities' ability to impose fines and thus raise revenue from traffic infractions caught by automatic number plate recognition cameras and on the use of such cameras in box junctions. They say Sunak is also expected to cite concerns about so-called 15-minute cities, an urban planning concept based around having shops and workplaces near homes, which some protesters claim is a UN-led conspiracy to limit people's ability to travel. A Department for Transport Source described the policies as speculation. The sustainable transport charity Sustrans isn't impressed. They said this. Why is the Prime Minister going out of his way to clog our roads with cars? What kind of legacy is this supposed to leave? What about the 45% of people on low incomes who don't own a car? Prioritising cars in this way serves no one, not pedestrians, not cyclists, not users of public transport. It doesn't even benefit drivers who will face more congestion. The Prime Minister's position on speed limits puts him at loggerheads with the Welsh Government, where 20 miles per hour is now the default speed limit in built-up areas. Sunak was asked about that on ITV Wales. Prime Minister, do you agree with Penny Morden that Wales's 20 miles an hour policy is insane? Yeah, I, no, I, I think imposing a blanket 20 mile an hour speed limit on areas is absolutely not right. It's not and blanket it does, though, is it? It doesn't reflect people's priorities. People are dependent on their cars for their day-to-day journeys. And, we should, and these kind of blanket bans aren't, aren't the right proportionate approach. But also, it comes on top of this other policy, not to build any new roads as well. Like, when you take these things together, it seems like an attack on motorists. And it's rightly received the opposition that it deserves. I do have to pick you up. It's not a blanket ban, though. It's not a blanket speed limit. There's you know, 30 miles, 40, 50, 60, 70, so it's not blanket. Well, I, think, I don't think that's quite right. I mean, look, the opposition in Wales is clear. You don't need to tell you. You've seen the unprecedented amount of opposition to the sure, policy. Sure, but language is important, isn't it? And if you're going to call it a blanket speed limit, it's not blanket. Well, as I said, I think, look, so you've seen the opposition from people in Wales to this policy. There's a blanket 20 mile per hour speed limit. No, it's not blanket because there's actually different speed limits on different roads. Well, you know, there's still opposition to it anyway. You know, you're the prime minister. Right? You're not some Twitter pundit who's just giving their opinion. You're someone who is the most powerful person in the country, and you're being told, no, it's not blanking. It's like, wow, I mean, it kind of is black. I don't understand anyway. I mean, as for the policy, I live um, in a 20-mile-hour low-traffic neighborhood in Hackney. I love it. Um, I want as many people as possible to be able to experience that. I am generally instinctively in favor of policies which sort of disfavor driving and favour cyclists and pedestrians and the like. Opponents of the Tories do need to be careful with their arguments, though. This was a recent exchange between a Sky News host and Kemi Badenoch. They were talking about shifting the phase-out of electric cars. 
these changes, they don't really help the poorest in society, a lot of people would argue. The poorest in society aren't fretting about when they're going to replace their car with an electric car because the poorest in society don't drive in this country. I think, the poorest I think, I think, in society I'm, are not I'm, worried about I'm, installing I'm a heat I'm so pump. sorry, but that is a ludicrous statement. If you step outside of London, come to my constituency, you will find the poorest in society drive because they live in a rural area. That, these but, rules, no, 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 no. What you said is actually quite astonishing. It is not these, astonishing. It is a third astonishing. of the country doesn't what drive. You, what, the, the third, third of the country doesn't people who cars. live in cities, People who live in cities will be able to deal with this in a way that is quite different from people who live in towns and rural areas. We need to think about everybody, not just the metropolitan bubble. There are people bubble. that live in, ci yes, there in, are. in cities across the country. This is nothing to do with an urban yes, bubble yes, and metropolitan it, 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 London. I'm afraid. I'm I live afraid, in the countryside and just, I come from Newcastle. Well, I'm afraid that my constituents, I'm afraid bubble. that my constituents raise these concerns all the time and those who are least able to afford it are the ones who are making the most complaints. And we as a government are thinking about them. So I completely disagree with that assertion. As a born and bred, as a born and bred Londoner who can't drive, I had to Google some stats to find out where I stood on that particular exchange. And it does turn out Badenoch was pretty much correct. Across the country, poorer people are less likely to drive than richer people, but the majority of them do still drive. This is research from the Health Foundation using data from Essex University. It shows the proportion of households without access to a car by income quintile and by year. Now, in the most recent year, they have data for 33% of the poorest fifth of households didn't have access to a car. That means two-thirds of them did. That comment we showed you from Sustrans suggests that maybe it's changed a little bit since then, but it's still the case that the majority of people in, the, in, in those sort of bottom income groups do drive, even though they're less likely um, to have access to a car than richer people. Um, Aaron, what do you make of this, the sort of politics of, of motorists? It seems to be something that Rishi Sunak is leaning into. He thinks this is going to unite his, his base. Um, and he thinks, you know, this is maybe a trap that the left are going to fall into. Do you think it makes any sense from his point of view? Yeah, I think it makes a ton of sense. I mean, the context here is that the Conservatives have given up, really, I think, on, on winning a majority. They still might, of course. But the, this is really, I think, guerrilla warfare. There's no broader strategy. What we're seeing instead is just a series of of ad hoc tactics. And one of those ad hoc tactics is um, talking and leaning into this perceived and obviously completely nonsensical war on the motorist, uh, which simply doesn't exist. Uh, but like I say, they're doing that precisely because they know right now the target is around 35%. Best case scenario, hung parliament. But realistically, they just want to save as many of their hides as humanly possible. Now, what that means is getting their base out. Uh, of course, they do have one advantage, which is they had a stonking majority in 2019. They had X number of people. I can't remember you tell me, Michael, I think 14 million plus people voting for them in 2019. Um, on, on, on many sort of levels, national, but also hyperlocal, they have those people in their data sets. They just need to get those people to turn out. Now, right now, the reason why Labour have such a huge majority in polling isn't really because huge numbers of Tories have crossed over to Labour. Tory votes in 2019 are now intending to vote Labour in 2024, 2025, but primarily because those Tory voters aren't turning out. Obviously, Labour have won some, some of them. They won some of the Dems. Um, they've got some people that didn't vote before, Brexit party voters or whatever. But generally speaking, the Tory's problem is their vote is not turning out. And I think there is a correct perception here that you know the lowest hanging fruit, and certainly the first step to a a more sustained fight back where they do form a government, which seems implausible, but I think this is a, a necessary prerequisite, it is turning out that base. And, and they do care about stuff like, you know, driving, tax, migration, 
Um, not enough to win a majority, uh, certainly not enough to infuse new voters towards the Conservatives, but that's not the ambition here. Do you have any strong feelings on the sort of 20-mile speed limit, speed cameras to raise money for councils? I mean, I think if councils need to raise money, then raising it off people speeding isn't you know, the worst thing to do. I mean, I, I suppose it's somewhat regressive because it's not proportionate to people's income, is it? Um, but I mean, I, I, I genuinely think that speeding is a really bad antisocial thing to do on our roads. So I don't really mind it being punished. Obviously, I don't want it to bankrupt people. I mean, what do you think? You know, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, let me come at this from sort of non-London um, angle. Uh, that's not trying to sort of, you know, make, it, make pleas of sort of uh, greater political authenticity. But obviously, when it comes to public transport infrastructure, cycling and whatnot, with some exceptions, places like Oxford and Cambridge, you know, London looks profoundly different to the rest of England, most certainly. Uh, I think in places with very low public transport infrastructure, uh, with really no alternatives to cars, uh, I think people are going to get very angry. And not just about this. I think general perceptions that they're being attacked from all sides on their standards of living. And of course, it's additive. And what the Tories can do is they can say, well, look, this one thing is being foisted upon you by the left, uh, the Welsh Labour Party, left-wing councils, and we want to help you. Now, of course, realistically, speed limits going from 30 to 20 is tiny compared to runaway water bills, energy bills, rents, spiralling mortgage costs, of course, tiny. But the Tories don't want to talk about all those things because it's going to get them in trouble. It'll get them in hot water. They do want to talk about the one thing which puts the sort of clear water between them and Labour. So I'm, I'm sympathetic to why somebody would be upset about this and wouldn't vote Labour or would disagree with the left on it. I don't think they're right, but I think that broader context of stagnating living standards, cost of living crisis, certainly makes it comprehensible. You know, the Tories are very good at packaging, frankly, ridiculous policies and proposals in response to very real problems. We have a very real problem which is that blue-collar Brits and working-class people are being smashed right now in terms of their cost of living. For many of those people, a very useful shorthand is, I can't afford to drive as much as I could before, or it's not as convenient for me to drive as it is before, and the alternatives, bus, rail, cycling, are shit. So I think it's clever politics from the Tories, but of course, I think, like you say, Michael, in in an ideal world, um, clearly 20-mile-per-hour speed limits in in major urban areas, to me, seems entirely sensible. Um, and what I would say as well, in addition to that, is I think LTNs are too. I think in, in places where you have good public transport infrastructure, these kinds of initiatives, once they're implemented, you as well in central London, people really back them. The problem is, Michael, I think the left, on things like LTNs, um, on things like ULES outside London, we have to be careful. We don't put the cart before the horse. You know, yes, of course, you want some disincentives to get people out of cars. We also need incentives for people to use public transport. You have something like that now happening in Manchester with the B network, but really for the rest of the country, it's not the case. And I think it's very important the left makes that argument at the same time as saying that the future can't be cars. On to our next story, which is very much related. Rishi Sunak's new electoral strategy involves sucking up to motorists. He seems to believe that blocking local councils from installing speed limits will unite the Tory base, both in the home counties and the Red Wall. But what if some in the north of the country have other priorities? High-speed rail, for example. Well, that was put to him by a host at BBC Radio Manchester, and he didn't handle it well. We're straight talking people in the north. It's a yes or a no. Are you scrapping the HS2 line between Birmingham and Manchester? Now, like I said, I'm not, not speculating on future things. We've got spades in the ground right now and we're getting on. But what but people is it under also review? want to know... 
as government is always making sure that we get value for money out of everything we do but that's just a statement of the obvious right but but i think what people also should know because i know there's a lot of focus on this one thing but actually what are the journeys that people use most in greater manchester or across the north north it's it's on in their cars right now getting to work taking their kids to school making sure that the roads are free of potholes that's kind of probably priority number We're not one that people raise with me the main story uh, right now we, across the country I, is people want to know about the future of hs2 and still now you can't give me a yes or a no and you're the man in control you you have the keys I, you can tell and, us I, now if that's happening but, but anna my, my point to you is the vast majority of the journeys that people make are, are in their cars making sure that we make sure our roads are well maintained but we're talking really about important. trains uh, we're not talking about cars <laughs> you could see the exasperation in her face um, if you're listening on the podcast, you could also hear it in her voice, of course. Um, Aaron, watching that, I mean, he's going to get slaughtered at the next election, isn't he? Of course, government cares about uh, cost management, but that's just to state the obvious. It's like, you're, you're trying to be talking to the audience at home. What the hell are you doing? Yeah, I'm the Prime Minister. I couldn't possibly tell you anything about the future of what the government intends to do. I mean, that's just an extraordinary assertion, isn't it? I'm the promise. You're you're the one person out of 16 million people in this country. You're the one person who should definitely be able to answer that question. Okay, you know, if somebody's in the cabinet, maybe you'd let them off. But the prime minister, you've been given a mandate—not you personally, but your party—in 2019 of 80 people, precisely because you can answer that question. But you can't. I mean, it's really basically, you know, it's it's a, you know, it's translation for saying sack me. I'm I'm a useless prime minister. Um, and, of course, the reason why he was so evasive, Michael, is because the Tories have their conference over the next week in Manchester. And it is supremely stupid uh, from a public relations perspective to be doing what it seems they're about to do, which is effectively declare that uh, the HS2 leg going to Manchester from Birmingham will be potentially cancelled. I mean, to announce that before your own conference in Manchester, not suicidal, but it's pretty damn close, doing something very counterproductive to your own interests. Um, of course, one has to suspect that if it was good news, if they were to say, no, this leg will most certainly stay, they would therefore be shouting it from the rooftops because the conference itself will be in Manchester. Perhaps we're all being played. Perhaps there'll be a great act of political drama and Rishi will talk about, you know, the Manchester connection and the new station in Manchester, Piccadilly or whatever, come 2035 or whatever the hell is going to be finished, probably 2135 at this rate. It is really interesting, isn't it, Michael, how... It's local journalists on the BBC, generally speaking, who who hold politicians the most accountable. We saw it, of course, with the uh, with the Johnson government too. Uh, we've seen it time after time as well. I think Liz Truss had her run-ins with with uh, local journalists as they do these media rounds. Far more uh, accountability coming from people in Manchester, Leeds, Birmingham, the Southwest, than from journalists at Westminster. I think that really goes back to the point that I've said so many times, Michael. We have no accountability and scrutiny when it comes to politics and political journalism in this country because they're all friends. You know, Andrew Marr, for so long, political editor at the BBC, had his own show on the Sundays. He had a novel. Where was the launch of that novel he wrote? It was in Number 10 Downing Street, hosted by David Cameron. That is a favour you do for a friend. That is not something you do to somebody or for somebody whose job is to hold you accountable. Very strange. So I think the fact... Uh, we're seeing this kind of accountability coming from local journalists, very revealing, confirms and compounds something we've uh, seen previously. Uh, and look, if you're a betting person, surely this means that the Manchester leg is either going to be dramatically delayed or cancelled. I mean, if I had to, like I said, if I was a betting man, 
I think it would be delayed to the extent that it's basically being cancelled. It's a bit like that pledge to net zero, you know. We're sticking by net zero, but we're not going to do anything which means we can reach net zero. The analogy I used uh, the day that Sunak gave that speech was to say, we're still having a Christmas dinner. Everybody's welcome on December the 25th, but we're not buying any food. Okay, well, you're not making Christmas dinner, are you? So I think we're basically seeing a similar strategy potentially with the, uh, the HS2 leg from uh, Birmingham to Manchester. While Sunak may have gone cold on HS2, not everyone has. Andy Haldane is a former chief economist at the Bank of England. He said this to Channel 4 this week. On the specifics of HS2, that is a crucially important, totemic, I would say, symbol of levelling up in practice. If I had my way, we'd be talking not about HS2 being thin-sliced, but about HS3, HS4 and HS5. We said in the report that by unlocking the potential in UK cities, you could earn yourself an extra £100 billion. That's each year. Each year, Hellier. Which stands comparison with the £100 billion you mentioned for HS2 as a one-off cost, right? Compare the two. Of course, that's a price worth, that's an investment worth making. It's a price worth paying. I think build the whole of HS2. Build, build all the legs take it up to Scotland, build Northern Powerhouse Rail. Why can France have high-speed rail? Why can Spain have high-speed rail and we can't? It just seems completely ridiculous. If, if the problem is it's got too expensive, then let's look at why high-speed rail is more expensive in Britain than it is elsewhere. Let's not just dump the high-speed rail. And I think the other thing that points to is sort of the, the idiocy of the way this country has been run, whereby constantly what you're trying to do is cut costs and not thinking about investing in the future, right? Because it might be expensive now, but if it pays off in the long term, then it's worth doing. Now, he's saying that's exactly what HS2 will do. I think you could apply that to so many things, including like our kids' education, fundamentally. Aaron, it was kind of refreshing, wasn't it, to see sort of someone say, HS2, HS3, HS4. Someone say, let's just goddamn build some stuff. To quote Mao Zedong, let a thousand HS2s bloom, Michael. Uh, it was refreshing and also strange coming from a, you know, somebody who's associated with the National Central Bank. Often those are the people that talk about fiscal prudence and don't spend any money and uh, all that hocus-pocus. It's entirely true. You know, there was an argument that's put forward by Peter Hitchens with typical contrarian panache. He said, we don't need HS2. We need low speed one uh, because apparently we're a small country. We can just have more slow trains. He basically wants to, to reverse the closures of, of Beijing's acts with regards to, you know, the, the destruction and dismantling, really, of, of the train network we had before the 1960s. And I, I don't think that's entirely wrong. I think we should reopen some of those for sure. Somewhere like, for instance, uh, Brecon, uh, I don't think it has a train station, right? Someone like Gosport near where I live, I don't think it has a train station. It's also incredibly hard to get to by car. You've basically made somewhere unlivable, frankly. If somebody wants to live there and work elsewhere, impossible. They have to drive and it's a bloody horrible drive. So um, I, I think we do probably need a mix of low speed one and HS2. It is depressing, Michael, because the argument that's made again by people like Peter Hitchens is that, you know, we're a small country, we don't need high-speed trains. Well, Italy is a similar-sized country, and it has high-speed rail going between its major cities. You know, and we should really be talking about HS2, 3, 4, 5, 6. You know, what about the high-speed connection that connects, say, Plymouth, Exeter, Bournemouth, Southampton, Portsmouth, Brighton, Hastings, Canterbury? Game-changer for the South Coast. Game-changer. You know, if we were a sensible country, that's the conversation we'd be having, not whether or not we should be connecting Manchester to Birmingham, our third largest city by GDP, to our second largest city by GDP. Crazy. 
absolutely crazy. And I was asked this question. I went on, I went on GB News and they were asking, you know, with Peter Hitchens, should we build this? And I'm saying, look, we're, we're, I'm a socialist, but you have to look at this from the perspective of, of, of investment and private enterprise, as Haldane said there. You're looking to invest in a city. Okay. You're looking at places like Lille, uh, Bilbao, Valencia, Turin, Milan. I could go on. Strasbourg, Krakow. They all have very good infrastructure. They all have very good rail connections. They all have lots of educated young people. They all have actually fantastic urban environments, right? Now, if you're looking at Bilbao or you're looking at um, Toulouse and then you're looking at Manchester, of course, rail access and the ability to get from there to other places is hugely important. I'll finish with this, this Michael. The Tories want to build a free port in Liverpool, okay? They're obsessed with free ports. Now, of course, it's a port. Stuff will enter the UK via a port and, and it will go elsewhere. But they don't want to have a high-speed connection between Liverpool and Manchester, this enormous city right next to it, or Liverpool and London. I find it absolutely mind-bending, mind-numbing, frankly, after 13 years of the people, but the Tories say, yeah, we want to build a port. You'll be able to invest there. We can trade. But then you've got to get on Thomas the Tank Engine and go two miles an hour if you want to go to, you know, half a dozen places where those goods might want to get rather quickly. Crazy. They're, they're not serious about building an infrastructure for a 21st century country. Yes, of course, this has gone uh, overboard in terms of cost. You know, originally we were seeing 30 billion for the whole project, including Manchester. Uh, and of course, the Leeds, I think, I think that was including the original Sun Michael, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. Now it's 100 billion plus without some of the aspects that were originally included. Of course, that's a problem. That's an argument to address costs, not to ditch the whole thing. You know, it's a matter of time, I think, before we get people who are from the construction industry or chartered surveyors saying, I want to go into politics because I know how to keep costs down when it comes to big infrastructure projects. Some people do, by the way. It's just we don't have many of them in public life in this country. I think emblematic here, Michael, is for our parliament to refurbish and renovate the Houses of Parliament is going to cost, if we're going the full Monty, £20 billion. £20 billion. 1% of UK GDP to renovate the Houses of Parliament. 1% of the entire economy and its output for one year to renovate one building, frankly. Right? SpaceX put Starlink in the air for I think 12, $12 billion. So you're basically saying that to renovate one building in central London, one building costs approximately twice as much as it costs to build a space-based internet that the whole world can access. Like maybe, maybe I'm stupid, but that sounds ridiculous. So obviously we need to get on top of costs and, um, and procurement in, in, in this country. Obviously we have to do that. We also have to build a high-speed rail network connecting our great cities. Aaron. If I was watching this and I was your ideological enemy, I would say Aaron Bastani, fully automated luxury communist, has just made the argument for private enterprise over and above state investment. Elon Musk can send Starlink into space for 20 billion quid. The government can't organize to repair its own house for less than 20 billion quid. How would you respond? Have you just disproved your own book thesis? Well, actually, they're, they're, they're strikingly similar in many ways. So, for instance, um, SpaceX, which isn't a public limited company, it's, it's a private company, which is just crazy. It's a private company. Um, SpaceX, you know, they build that project off the back of public investment, particularly NASA contracts or contracts with various nation states to get satellites into the air. You know, SpaceX does not exist originally without US taxpayer money. 
Um, and so what that shows you is actually public-private partnership, and I don't mean in the Blairite sense, but NASA, for instance, with the, the moon landings, which is a similar one, or World War II, you know, Spitfires were used by the IRF, but they were built by Supermarine, which is a private enterprise. You can do mission-oriented projects using both the, the, the state and uh, private enterprise. And that, I, I would say that was what Starlink is, right? <laughs> the American state doesn't let that go up, go on unless the CIA has got a backdoor into it. But that's for another conversation. Uh, I, I think instead, Michael, I think these turn out to be highly efficient when it's public investments like with uh, the technologies behind the iPhones, developed primarily by US defense agencies, when it's public investments which are being then marketized and commodified to make money for private individuals, incredibly efficient. But when we leave these things to politicians to enact public goods for the people, incredibly inefficient. There's two sort of big explanations for me why here. One is consultants. Fake job. Fake job, right? A great, uh, a great book on this by Mariana Mazzucato about consultancy. Fake job, fake job. It's not a real job. All of that stuff, should, well, almost all of that should be done by civil servants, almost all of it. You can see some value in what consultants do, but actually they slow down processes. They they add very little value. They take a hell of a lot of cash. And even as we've seen uh, in Australia recently, I think it was with McKinsey, uh, they were even divulging state secrets to people that then made, went on to make money. So consultants are one part of the problem. And then another part of this, Michael, is, you know, Trump was saying, I will build a wall. I'm a property guy. I'm really good at building stuff. For people who are acquainted with decades of the state being crap at doing stuff, that's a really alluring message. But, you know, I, lo- I know that the liberal media loves to paint, you know, US voters who voted for Trump in 2016 as stupid morons. But that message of I can build stuff and get value for you is clearly good. I mean, if, if only we had somebody saying that in this country and actually meant it rather than a, a charlatan like Trump. Uh, and then finally, you know, the state has often got very good value for money in the past, Michael. You know, when we had, again, World War II, when you have Messerschmitts and Stuckers flying over the English Channel, nobody said, leave it to the market. Leave it to the market. They said, we need the state to get involved to coordinate production to achieve something really quickly, really efficiently that private enterprise can't do. The same with the moon landing. The same with Sputnik, uh, the same with regards to um, distributing the COVID vaccine in, in, in recent years. So the state can do tremendous things at scale very efficiently. The NHS, another one, the NHS is much more efficient than the United States private healthcare service. It can do things very efficiently, but we need the right people in charge and we need to have confidence in the civil service and state capacity to do things rather than saying, let's have consultants, let's have, you know, crazy, crazy. Uh, with regards to HS2 as well, of course, there is the, um, the added aspect of, of NIMBYs and having to build tunnels to appease people and build this and build that because you're trying to please various stakeholders who still don't want to build it anyway. But I think you're right in regards to Parliament costing 20 billion. Extraordinary. I think we did. I'd say let's have a public inquiry. It won't do anything. I think, frankly, this is why I like PR. We need more people, more parties in politics to expose these kinds of failings and offer different kinds of solutions. Very good answer. I'm glad I put that to you, Aaron. Um, I, I, I tend to agree with you, in fact, actually. I, 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 the model of having a state that can actually procure stuff and and then the private sector do it seems to work okay. The problem is when you have all of these consultants in the middle. So the problem with HS2, you know, no one's saying it's expensive because the state didn't directly lay the tracks. But one of the reasons it seems to be very expensive is because the state no longer knows how to procure people to lay tracks and they just get loads of consultancy arms to do it. And then the whole thing just becomes this big bloated mess 
And presumably when it came to Starlink, you know, one thing the Department of Defense is is, is well funded, right? They didn't they didn't um completely erode that back as we did, say, with the Department for Transport, right? Well, we've just had the, these constant cuts to the civil service so that they're a little bit useless now. Department for Defense, the Americans are, are not going to cut the Department for Defense to the bone, which is maybe why they're better at procuring stuff. Let's go to our next story. The tragic killing of 15-year-old Eliane Andam has put renewed focus on the problem of knife crime. Andam was the 15th teenager to be killed using a knife so far this year in London. And knife crime does seem to be on the rise. In the 12 months to March 2022, there were 282 murders involving a knife or sharp instrument in England and Wales. That's the highest total since 1946, when statistics began. Now, that statistic bucks the trend of overall crime, which has generally fallen since the mid-1990s. So even with overall crime, there has been an uptick in recent years. Now, on the reasons for the increase in youth knife crime, an audience member said this on BBC Question Time. I've worked with young people since 1985. So I've seen a systematic change in the way that young people and adults interact. Mark, I have to say, please stop using statistics to defend the undefensible. You've stripped local government of youth services. You've taken responsibility (laughs) away from councils that had proper youth provisions that the, the communities were a part of. I've grown up in Manchester, I'm nearly 60. So they had MAGS, which is the multi-agency gang, where Mossad was going crazy. They had community members, they had youth workers, they had social workers, they had a whole range of professionals and people involved in the community. And the community could police themselves, but the conservative government through austerity and these give police back the powers, you had community policemen who knew the community, who knew the people, but you're ramping up powers and you're forgetting people. It's people and all you're interested in is the law and punishment. Whereas if you talk to people, I've been into jail with young people that are in jail and you talk to them as a human being and you show them the consequences of their actions. Even in gang culture, these rules, these regulations, But you just don't see that and you don't hear that because one, it doesn't touch your life. And two, it's a party political vote and a game. So stop playing politics with people's lives because you'll say tomorrow, oh, no, you do. You've done it systematically. And and you do this every time somebody passes away, somebody's killed. Mm. But you've created the environment. That was such a thoughtful, such a well-considered um, intervention from someone in the audience with with clearly like a very very deep understanding of what's going on here, but that didn't stop a Tory MP from you know giving this clip a ridiculous I have to say ridiculous quote tweets. This is Brendan Clark Smith. As a former youth worker myself, I'm sorry, but this is absolute garbage. Talking about this member of the public. When I was younger, I didn't carry a knife, loot local shops, or go around chopping trees down because the youth club wasn't open. I found something to do. My parents also cared about my whereabouts. And the reason this is so stupid, and I think offensive also because it completely misrepresents what the person in the audience was saying. Now, the person in the audience wasn't saying that any time someone stabs someone, 
oh, that's because there wasn't a youth club to go to. No, of course, these things are always going to be complex. There's always going to be a number of reasons as to why that happened, as to what led up to that. Of course, also, you know, the closure of youth centres doesn't diminish or it doesn't remove, let's say, um, personal responsibility from the kind of people who sort of partake in these actions that have terrible consequences. But that's not the argument that the audience member was making, right? And it's not the argument that any sensible person would be making. The point of having youth centres, having services for young people is that, you will have less people going into the kind of lifestyles where you end up committing knife crime, right? You'll have more people who have more purpose in their life, have more reason to sort of care about their futures so that they they see the idea of either, you know, getting stabbed themselves or getting arrested as a real problem. You know, I feel like if you're going out in the street with a big knife, that suggests that you probably don't have that much concern about the the possibility of, uh, of getting arrested because you don't think you're going to have a particularly sort of interesting later life anyway. It, it, it suggests to me that, you know, there is an element of nihilism, which is probably because you don't have enough hope and opportunities for your future. So obviously, if you have more youth clubs, if you have more youth services, knife crime will go down. There will still be knife crime, right? And it's it, you can never say with any one incident, would that have happened or would that not have happened? Were there more social clubs? But I think what we can be pretty sure about is if you reduce provisions for kids, which give them purpose in life, then you will, on average, see an overall increase in knife crime. And Aaron, I just I, I want your view on this because I just think that comment from Brendan Clark Smith from to, you know to that thoughtful audience member is just so offensive because he's also implying, oh, the audience member is suggesting, oh, well, we can't blame these kids for stabbing people because you know I I had personal responsibility when I was a youngster. That's not what's being argued. I believe in personal responsibility, but you have to set the person up in a way that they're not being set up to fail. Because then, I mean, they aren't responsible entirely, are they? And that's the left-wing argument. But I don't think it's an either-or. I mean, fundamentally, Michael, and this is something that's just beyond, beyond debate. There's no debate, okay? More equal societies are less violent. The lower inequality is in a society, the less violent it is, the more happy people generally are. Generally. I mean, you can look at the Nordic countries and rates of suicide, and we probably say that's because of climatic conditions and whatnot. But the overall global trend is precisely that. Uh, so, for instance, the quintessential argument here is really Japan, very, very low inequality for a, a, such a wealthy country. Um, now, of course, the conservative would say that's because they have the death penalty. Um, that's because they have low levels of immigration and they have, you know, it's a very traditional society. And the left will say that's actually because they've got, uh, you know, low levels of inequality um, and they've got social institutions, which, broadly speaking, most people of most backgrounds can can access. And they, you know, they have a shared culture of respect. And I, this is very, I mean, very brief. Obviously, I'm not giving all the nuance that I possibly can, but I think that's what it boils down to. As somebody on the left, I'm happy to listen to the arguments, okay, or greater authoritarianism will mean lower crime, less violence. Well, that doesn't seem to be the case in the United States over the last 45 years. More people incarcerated. You don't see recidivism, uh, reoffending, falling. You see greater violence, really. Although, like you say, many crimes have fallen since their peak of the 1990s. Uh, but school shootings, for instance, have just you know, rocketed. You know, the, 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 the idea that higher higher incarceration rates have made society less violent in the US, I think, is, is clearly been debunked. But that, to me, is the, is the place you have to start, Michael. More equal societies are less violent. If we want a less violent society, of course, violent things will still happen. People will still be murdered. That will happen. That's, that's always happened. But if we want to reduce the number of those things, we do want lower levels of inequality. We just do. Now... That, that doesn't mean I think everybody should be made equal. We should have no inequality. I mean, I'm a socialist. I kind of think that. But I know that's the kind of pastiche of the argument that the conservatives would make. But you could say, well, look, 
even if we just aspired to go back to levels of inequality that we last saw in the late 1970s, we would see substantially less violence. At which point, of course, they would say, well, it's a moral outrage that you'd be taxing us so much. What about uh, aspiration? I want to get on. Okay, well, fine. That's the, that's the trade-off you're willing to make. That, you know, 5% of society can do really well, can live the life of Riley. More broadly, society is dysfunctional. High streets are like shit. We have higher um, levels of stabbings. We have more social dysfunction. Okay, that's the trade-off you're willing to make. Just be honest about it. Just be honest about it. Now, I'm not saying inequality is the root of all these problems, but I think that is where I would start. And then secondly, you know, Tories and the right, they love to talk about the family. They say, this is because of a broken family. Did this young man have a have a father around and so on and so forth? Well, of course, economics and inequality massively inflect the ability of parents to raise children. Of course they do. We don't live in some purely spiritual world. We live in a physical world where there are constraints on what you can do. If you have two parents working 12 hours a day and there's no free childcare, then it's very difficult to raise a child in a nice, calm family environment. It just is. So I find it really strange that Tories don't want to act really on healthcare. They've said they're going to do some stuff under Jeremy Hunt. I believe when I see it, frankly. But they've, you know, they've, they've scrapped your stuff. Uh, they do very little on childcare. They do very little on inequality. And like you say, they've scrapped cornerstone services that do a really basic obvious thing which is to keep young people off the streets simple as that right i think if you do those three things uh, i think if you lower inequality i think if you give parents more resources to raise children really well which we don't we make it as tough as possible to raise kids right now in this country and i think if you bring back the kinds of services you spoke about michael that's a great start okay and i think if you did that you would see a massive fall in the kinds of crime that we're talking about I mean, I, I suppose in terms of these issues of like, does mass incarceration reduce crime? I'm not, I, the, the things I read, it seems to sort of be ambiguous as to, you know, how big the effect is. But I think whatever the case, if even if it were the case that mass incarceration reduced crime to some degree, if, if, if greater equality also reduces crime to a similar or, or more, then let's go for the greater equality as opposed to the mass incarceration because mass incarceration has some dreadful consequences and greater levels of equality, the side benefits are all, you know, the, the side effects, let's say, are all fabulous. So, you know, we can either go down this, this route to reduce crime, which creates loads and loads of pain, even if it does reduce a bit of crime on, on the street, or we can go down the route which reduces crime on the street and makes everyone happier, healthier, have longer lives, more fulfilled, you know, that seems to me to be the argument for social democracy, essentially, and when it comes to, to the issue of crime. Let's go to our next story. Civil war appears to have broken out at GB News. Lawrence Fox has been suspended. Dan Wooten has been suspended. And another host has taken to the barricades for the right of raving misogynists to broadcast on our TV sets. The oddball deacon, Calvin Robinson, this morning tweeted this. I will not be appearing on Dan Wooten tonight without Dan Wooten. Dan Wooten had a significant part to play in building GB News. He invited me along pre-launch. He also brought so many people on board, behind the cameras as well as on-screen talent, including the careerist, ambitious ones who are currently gunning for his job. These people are worse than the woke mob because these vultures are giving the mob ammunition and essentially escalating the channel's demise. He also went on to say this, 
Our bosses are scared, afraid of Ofcom, afraid of the woke mob, and afraid they're going to run out of money unless they manage to sort this advertising problem out. We need to give them courage, not enable them to capitulate. If they pander to the woke mob, we are finished. Someone else might get the prime time slot for a bit, but it will not be a promotion if you jump in Dan's grave. You'll just be making space alongside his corpse for your own. Now, I've only read you a section of his tweet. Um, that was a real essay um, which he put up on Twitter or now X. He had a much shorter tweet a couple hours later. I have been suspended from GB News. So another one bites the dust. Um, on the reason for Dan Witten's suspension, which is what prompted Robinson's glorious act of sacrifice, Pop Bitch has reported this. Even though on screen he might have looked just hopelessly out of his depth, the reason Wooden has incurred the wrath of his bosses is because he was repeatedly and actively ignoring multiple management commands. From the start of Fox's rant, the voice in Dan's earpiece was telling him to stop Fox, to push back and apologise, but he tuned it out. Then one of the senior bods drafted an apology for him to read out after the item, and he skipped past it on the autocue. Then the top brass were on the phone to the studio insisting Dan apologise on air, and he just didn't. That's interesting. That's to pop bitch. It's sort of like an email which sort of emails out gossip from the world of politics and media. Now, potentially that was briefed in a sort of self-serving way because essentially what that's saying is, you know, the management, the producers, we were all on top of this. We were doing the professional thing and it was all Dan ignoring us. So, you know, that could be a briefing to this website, which is trying to protect management. We've got no idea. Um, either way, um, it sounds like Dan Wooten is in a bit of trouble. If you look at, for instance, three people involved here, Dan Woods and Lawrence Fox and, and Calvin Robinson, particularly Calvin Robinson and Lawrence Fox, these, these people aren't journalists. They're not, I don't think they claim to be journalists. They weren't journalists before joining GB News, right? Lawrence Fox was an actor, started to get involved on social media, and, and Calvin Robinson was uh, a man of the cloth. I think it's probably unsurprising, therefore, that the minute you have a, a major crisis organization, which this is, uh, they act in a way that's probably deeply unprofessional and unbecoming of, of people in that industry. Particularly, let's look at let's look at um, let's look at uh, Calvin Robinson. He said, while there was an ongoing investigation into one of his colleagues, I won't do X publicly. He didn't say it privately. He tweeted it publicly. If that was any you know any other media. Uh, show in town other than just gb news with all the furor it's brought this around here you would be suspended of course you'd be suspended there's an investigation into a colleague of yours and you're slagging it off publicly of course you'll be suspended you're bringing the organization into dispute um, and i think for me this really symbolizes a clash between the utopians in the organization people like calvin robinson lauren lawrence fox less dan Wharton, people like that um that coast guy uh, neil what's his name People like that, utopians. And then people like um, Michelle Jubry, uh, Emily Carver, Patrick Christie's, uh, Liam Halligan, their economics editor, very, very good broadcaster. Um, you know, I think what Christopher Choke they've got from the Telegraph. These are people that want to build a really big media brand, clearly to the right of Sky News and the BBC, but which can compete at a national level and make the news, make the agenda, get stories. That's what they want to do. Okay, that's going to mean some sacrifices. That's going to mean some compromise, right? It's going to mean that you have to listen to what Ofcom says. You can't pretend you live in a world where Ofcom doesn't exist. It means you've obviously got to uphold certain standards, which obviously Lawrence Fox and Dan Wooten fell short of. And it means that when there are things like investigations into a colleague, which will happen in any large organization over a long enough period of time, 
You don't behave like Calvin Robinson did on social media. Uh, and so I think, you know, you have that clash between the utopians and the people that want to build a right-wing broadcast network, which we don't have in this country. We have newspapers like that, but we haven't got a broadcast network like that. So that's the clash. And I know right right now it could be, oh, GB News is going down the toilet, blah, blah, blah. I think, frankly, GB News doesn't have a future if it's the utopians, right? They basically want a YouTube channel. I don't think they seem to have grasped that if you carry on like that, you, I know Ofcom has no teeth and Ofcom hasn't done very much, but eventually, if you carry on like that, you will have your license withdrawn, right? Paul Marshall, I think, who's the chap, chap who's funding it, he's not quite a billionaire. I think he's, you know, he's just short, 900 million or something. Let's call him a billionaire. He, he's not pouring money into a broadcast license so that it can be removed. So I think it is an interesting, it's an interesting moment. And for me, it kind of reflects actually some of the debates you w- would have seen on the left in the past. The way that Kevin Robinson and, and, and Amos and Lawrence Fox, particularly Fox and Robinson though, Michael, they're behaving like student Trotskyists who've left their student union in the 1970s. And they think the rest of the world looks like, um, looks like their little revolutionary coterie of friends in, uh, in wherever they were, Oxford or Red Brick University. Of course, the world isn't like that. And it's, it's a similar experience for these guys. I think they think that broadcast and Ofcom and the big wide world looks like Twitter. It doesn't. It doesn't. And if you think that, you're not prepared for the world of journalism. You should probably go somewhere else. Stay on Twitter. Have a YouTube channel. You, you can do that, by the way. And you can make that kind of content. You can't do it on a broadcast network. The most challenging political project that could arise from this is actually a serious network with serious people who are abiding by the rules who are actually ingratiated within the establishment and tip it right. That's a serious thing. I think what these guys think is a serious thing is a complete clown show, which will just disintegrate on impact with reality. You mentioned Ofcom there. Let's talk more about Ofcom because the CEO of GB News has given his first interview since this whole story broke up. He's called Angelos Frangopoulos. He was sort of before this, the CEO at Sky News Australia, which is actually more like Fox News than the Sky News we have here. Um, he was on the Today programme, and as well as the Lawrence Fox issue, Amal Rajan asked him this. Given your call GB News, and it's a news channel, do you agree that one function of journalism is to apply scrutiny to power? Of course it is. Then why on earth have you got serving politicians presenting news programmes? Chat shows, debates, podcasts, that's all very different. News programmes is a specific thing, and they're not generally former MPs, so Nigel Farage is, they're current serving ones. No Serving MP hosts a news bulletin-based program on GB News. What they do is absolutely permitted under the Ofcom rules. And if Ofcom, obviously Ofcom is currently looking at this, if that changes in the future, then obviously we'll look at it. But you must have a pretty low opinion of journalists. If you land a scoop with the Home Secretary, as you have done with Suella Bravman, who's given an interview to Lee Anderson, and you think the best person to interview them is Lee Anderson, who's her own party's deputy chair. He might be a hugely estimable, he might be a hugely impressive bloke, but he's not a journalist. And if you're a news programme, why don't you do the humble thing and get a journalist to interview the existing Home Secretary? Oh, Amal, this is where you're missing the whole point of what GB News is about. We are not really about news, you're more about creating noise. We are filling a gap in the landscape. We are not journalism for journalists. We're journalism for people. And that is a really big difference. The conversations that happen between uh, people like Suella Braverman and Lee Anderson, they are conversations. They're not interviews in the same sense as... Sure. I was going to say, say, it might be... the, the The thing that's most unconvincing about that is Lee Anderson tweeted this week, scoop. He's got a huge scoop 
which is he's got this interview with Suella Braverman. Now, scoop, that's the language of news, right? So if you if you had an interview with Beyonce, right, on Pop World, you wouldn't call it a scoop. You know, you'd call it, we've got this great interview coming up. So, you know, it's, it's not going to be, it's not going to make the news necessarily. What you're going to do is you're going to have this, this conversation with someone. I suppose with Beyonce, it might make the news if, you know, she had some new news about her life. But the, the fact of the interview isn't a scoop. Now, that's only a scoop if you're working in the news. So I don't find that particularly um, convincing. Obviously, it will be up to Ofcom. And the head of Ofcom has also given a rare TV interview this week on the question of politicians hosting shows. She said this. We've opened up audience research into this because actually the rules haven't changed over the last 20 years. And I think that's a really good thing to have that stability. But what has changed is our media landscape. We've got more and more shows coming in on TV and radio, but also we've got that wider social media landscape. I think a lot of the time what people are seeing uh, is actually clips on social media which don't represent the whole programme. Um, it's Ofcom's job to look at programmes once they've been aired in the round and see whether, if you're talking about impartiality, whether that's been preserved across the programme as a whole. I guess some people might find that quite extraordinary what you just said, that it's a good thing that the rules haven't changed in 20 years. I mean, many people would say that's a really bad thing because the landscape has changed so dramatically. Gordon Brown last night, for example, said, you know, because we've got a far wider range of broadcasters, the system of regulation is not good enough to cope for it. Ofcom needs to have more teeth. He's right, isn't he? Well, it's certainly the government is opening up in the media bill the need to extend the number of services that we regulate uh, to make sure that some of the streamers, for example, are caught by some form of broadcasting code that looks rather similar to what we do now for TV and radio. But um, I just want to say that freedom of expression, I think, is sometimes perhaps not as prominent in these debates as I think it should be. Um, the rules are designed to uphold standards, particularly for news and current affairs, but also to preserve freedom of expression. And that's not just the freedom of expression of the broadcaster or the opinion former or the presenter. It's actually the freedom of the audience to hear a wide range of views. I have to say, I find that quite a strange idea. How does the freedom of expression to watch GB News? It just seems that that's just a very odd, odd way of saying freedom of expression or sort of an, an odd concept of freedom of expression. Now, what was interesting there is it did seem like she's very relaxed about all of this. And the only thing she seemed to be keen to talk about, the changes that were needed, was she wants to regulate more, right? So it seems like she's saying, well, TV, you know, it's not, it's not that bad anyway. Like, we, we want to start regulating social media. We want to start regulating streamers on YouTube and the like. And she seems very, very relaxed about Tory politicians hosting shows. And I suppose what I'd say to that is it, you know... This is very new, what GB News are doing, and it does seem like she should be a little bit more alert to making sure that it doesn't become a sort of cesspit of Dan Wootton's and the like, right? Um, and it already is in many ways. Um, as I say, I go on it because I think some shows, are they, they really give you a hearing and you can speak to their audience. The problem I have as well, though, with what she said in this sort of, you have to give freedom of expression this sort of real big weight, is that it ignores the issue of money, right? So freedom of expression is when it comes especially to, to TV, I think more than sort of newspapers and definitely more than websites, you need a shed load of capital to make it work. So GB News started with £60 million seed funding. Um, last year, they made a loss of £30 million, right? So you have freedom of expression to broadcast on, you know, broadcast channels, linear TV that goes into people's living rooms to sort of buy that space um, on the airwaves. You have freedom of expression if you can afford to sink £30 million over the course of a year. So it, it, to me, is a pretty, um, let's say, impoverished idea of what 
free speech and freedom of expression means because it essentially says, you know, if you can sink 30 million pounds, you can say and do whatever you want and it will arrive on people's televisions in their in their living rooms. I think the idea of having an Ofcom or a regulator, which is a little bit more aggressive, is to say, actually, you know, the ability to, you know, you can say whatever you want in the world, but the ability to stream on linear TV straight into people's living rooms is, you know, that is almost a, a nationalized privilege, let's say. You you have to meet certain democratic norms to get that privilege to go into people's living rooms. It can't just be based on the size of your your wallet. And I've, I'm a bit worried that what she was suggesting is is basically to say, well, it is based on the size of your wallet. If you can afford to run a TV show, great, you're inc- increasing media diversity. The problem is if increasing if, if you can increase media diversity as long as you've got enough money, then where is politics going to go to the right? Because it's the right who have all the cash. Let's go to our final story. The Daily Mail has been found to have published inaccurate claims about Pakistani men. The judgment was made by the press regulator, but the author of the article in question is unlikely to get an angry call from the Daily Mail's editor. That's because, well, they're the Home Secretary. This is from The Guardian. Suella Braverman falsely claimed child grooming gangs in the UK were almost all Pakistani, according to a ruling by the press regulator Ipso. The Home Secretary made the claim in a Mail on Sunday article published in April, where she singled out British Pakistani men as being involved in child sexual abuse gangs due to, quote, cultural attitudes incompatible with British values and that have been left mostly unchallenged both within their communities and by wider society. The regulator said Braverman's decision to link the identified ethnic group in a particular form of offending was significantly misleading because the Home Office's own research had concluded offenders were mainly from white backgrounds. Now that's all incredibly shocking. So a cabinet minister, the Home Secretary, publishes in the Mail on Sunday incredibly sort of inflammatory statements, right? And they weren't true. Now, there is an argument, right, that you, you, you should, we should be open and honest with issues, even if it's difficult, even if it's difficult, even if some people might get offended, we need to be able to speak facts, to say the truth. But if you're saying something which is inflammatory, which could have very negative consequences in terms of, you know, how people are stereotyped or how people are seen in society, you know, this can provoke inter-ethnic violence, essentially, right, if you're blaming Pakistani men for grooming. If it's false right? There is, that's just the evil, essentially, right? But writing sort of inflammatory, divisive things that marginalize an ethnic community, which are false, is to to have a home secretary do that. Appalling, appalling, appalling. It also gets worse, I think, right? This is from The Guardian again. In its defense, the Mail on Sunday argued that prior to publication, it had double-checked Braverman's decision to single out British Pakistanis with advisors to the Home Secretary and the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Both teams at the top level of government confirmed they had, quote, no concern over this particular line, unquote, and were happy for it to be published. The newspaper also argued it was entitled to rely on factual information provided by the Home Secretary about the ethnicities of grooming gangs because the Home Office was the department responsible for dealing with the issue and Braverman was the most senior member of that department. Now, Ipso did find that defence from the Mail on Sunday reasonable. And the Mail were then found to not have been in breach of regulation because they did do what was normally considered to be due diligence. They did check the article, right? The problem for us is that they checked it with the Home Office, which is the normal thing to do, but the Home Office is even more dishonest than the tabloids, it seems. I mean, Aaron, a cabinet minister being found to have, you know, told an untruth in a mainstream newspaper about ethnic minorities. I mean, it's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? Suella Bradman is a pretty extraordinary person. Um, 
look, we're, we're in a desperate situation for the Conservatives. You don't do this when you think that you're on course to win a majority of the next general election. I mean, you know, you make calculated risks, and this doesn't seem like a calculated risk. I think, frankly, the whole strategy around the small boats seems very incalculated, partly because they've made a commitment to stop them coming over here, which, frankly, they can't deliver. And so they've set themselves a bar. They won't reach it. That's just going to mean more lost boats. It's a similar thing with regards to grooming gangs. It's a similar thing with regards to a ton of stuff. Now, for instance, with the, the ending the war on the driver, you know, what's the objective? At what point does the war end? At what point do you win and guarantee something for your, for your voters? So like I say, Michael, it really speaks to the fact there isn't a strategy right now from the government. There is a series of ad hoc tactics. Um, and so you end up with tactics of just really having, A, no broader narrative to the country. Right? What does Rishi, we say what does Starmer stand for? What does Rishi Sunak stand for? I have no idea. Uh, but it also means you make lots of screw-ups like this um, and, and you behave in a way that's kind of unprecedented, frankly, Prime Secretary. Thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. Have a great weekend. Um, we'll be back on Monday, as always. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.